Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, March 14th, and here's what's on the docket this week. A documentary about Theranos is set to premiere. We'll bring you my interview with the film's director, the documentarian Alex Gibney, about what it was like to take on Elizabeth Holmes. Who gets credit for inventing gene therapy for sickle cell disease? You might think it's the NIH if you watch Sunday's episode of the new show 60 Minutes. But as we'll explain, the gene therapy highlighted on the show is actually being developed by Bluebird Bio. And that has big implications for the way gene therapy's history gets told. A South San Francisco biotech startup called Perlara shut down at the end of last month. We'll interview the company's founder and CEO, Ethan Perlstein, about what went wrong and the lessons he learned along the way. And finally, a new acting commissioner has been picked to lead the FDA. We'll talk about the reaction to the appointment of Ned Sharpless, America's top cancer doctor. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you interested in CRISPR? Tune into CRISPR Cuts, Synthigo's official podcast for engaging conversations with scientists, science communicators, and industry experts around everything genome engineering, including tools, applications, its impact on society, and more. For CRISPR podcast episodes, visit synthigo.com forward slash stat. That's S-Y-N-T-H-E-G-O dot com forward slash stat. I think Elizabeth was caught in her own prison of belief and that it blinded her to the mistakes that were being made and the danger into which she was putting people. That was Alex Gibney talking about Elizabeth Holmes, the fallen founder of Theranos. Gibney is an Academy Award-winning documentarian who has spent a lot of time peering into ingenious fraudsters, liars, and questionable charismatic figures. His latest look is at Theranos, the Silicon Valley blood testing company that rose and then fell in spectacularly fraudulent fashion. In his new documentary called The Inventor, he tells Holmes' quite literally unbelievable story. When I think of Theranos, I really feel like there were two entirely different worlds. There was the carpeted world, and there was the tiled world. And the carpeted world was where Elizabeth was a goddess. Everyone, you know, almost worshipped the ground she walked on. And then you go onto the tile side and nothing works. We're on a sinking ship. Everything's a lie. Rebecca attended the San Francisco premiere of the film earlier this week. Rebecca, what was that scene like? So the first thing that you should know about the premiere is that MC Hammer was in the house. Uh, This sounds random, but it's actually really relevant because his song, You Can't Touch This, uh, comes up in one of the most striking moments of the film, which is sort of footage of a company celebration where Elizabeth Holmes is dancing robotically. But no, it was uh, was an interesting crowd. There was also a guy there wearing a black turtleneck, uh, which was some good biotech cosplay. So unfortunately, at least as I understand it, you were not able to get an interview with MC Hammer, but you were able to sit down with Gibney, the filmmaker. Let's cut in on on the conversation you had. So Alex, in your career as a documentarian, you've taken on figures like the Enron executives and the cyclist, Lance Armstrong. How does Elizabeth Holmes compare to some of these other figures you've made films about? In what ways does she stand out and where do you see commonalities? I mean, I think she's similar in the sense that you see somebody who believes that the end justifies the means. And that sounds like good news, but actually it's, it's bad news. 
and it's bad news in the sense that I, I don't believe that Elizabeth was ever uh, a scammer like a Bernie Madoff. I think she truly believed in her mission, and I think she also truly believed in wanting to find a mission for herself that fit her high ambitions. But what happens with some people who have that dynamic sense of mission is when the dream and the reality begin to depart Instead of investing in the reality, they invest in the dream and pretend that that is the reality. Uh, and then they begin to feel entitled to cut corners. So I think that's what happened at Enron. In a way, that's what happened with uh, Lance Armstrong. Also, I think you know there are lessons to be learned, too, from the Scientology film, Going Clear. The subtitle of that film was The Prison of Belief. I think Elizabeth was caught in her own prison of belief, and that it blinded her to the mistakes that were being made and the danger into which she was putting people. So I want to back up and talk about how you got involved in this project. HBO approached you about directing a film about Elizabeth Holmes. Why did you say yes? I said yes because I was interested in the psychology of fraud. I I mean, I, you know, Enron was actually a much bigger cataclysm in terms of the fraud coming crashing down. What was interesting about this one was you had a character who was so dynamic, so seemingly idealistic, and also embodied the hopes and dreams of many people, particularly women, who were hungry for a young female entrepreneur rising up out of male-dominated Silicon Valley to try to do something fundamental about changing healthcare. That all sounded great. But to understand how that could turn into something so bad, that's what was interesting to me. And I was interested in the idea of deception, but also the extent to which there was self-deception that allowed the deceiving to be more convincing. And I was also interested, too, in, in how the journalists and the um, investors were deceived and why. I want to ask you about your preparation as you got ready to direct this film. Tell me about your learning and research process. You know, it's usually a, a kind of an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing. And, and to begin to research and explore different facets of the story that are not necessarily so obvious, not just what happened, but to riff on things. It's kind of like you play the melody, and the melody is what happened, but then you riff on on the melody by way of exploring things that come up, uh, like Edison. That was the name of her machine. So we explored Edison. You know, who was he, and what relation did he have in unexpected ways to this story? And I think we also began to explore the idea of storytelling, and that came out of Edison, too, because I think one of the things that makes Elizabeth interesting is that she was a storyteller, and she told, she was the writer, director, and producer of her own story, and she did it in a pretty compelling way, and she would hire people like Patrick O'Neill from Chiat Day, who would, you know, work for Apple as a very compelling production designer who was designing the look of Theranos in order to be able to tell a better story. So all those things, I think, were part of what we were interested in. And and by the way, those were interesting and important paths for us to go down because early on, none of the employees from Theranos would talk to us because they were all terrified. When I watched the film, I was really struck by the story you told about Thomas Edison, who lied to journalists, faked results, and was really kind of the OG practitioner of Silicon Valley's fake-it-until-you-make-it culture. In that lens, tell me about the title of the film, The Inventor. What made you decide this had to be the title? 
I think Elizabeth really wanted to be perceived as an inventor. It wasn't enough for her to be a CEO. It wasn't enough for her to be somebody who, you know, oversaw the work of others. She wanted to be perceived as somebody who really invented the technology. And so she put her name on a lot of patents. So, of course, that was, you know, an element of it. But there's, there's two obvious meanings to the word inventor. The other one is to make stuff up. And that's the flip side. And sometimes even in inventing, when you're presenting your invention, you're making stuff up because you haven't gotten to where you want to be yet. That's what Edison did. The other thing that's interesting about inventing in terms of Elizabeth and Thomas Edison is they both invented personas for themselves to inhabit. And they sold their companies in a way by creating larger-than-life celebrity figures that they wrote, produced, and directed. And Thomas Edison was the wizard of Menlo Park, the wizard of Menlo Park. And Elizabeth was this larger-than-life figure who had her own look, who had her own very deep voice. Um, So that idea of invention, which is a very American idea, self-invention, was very important to this film, too. So you've said that you tried to interview Holmes for the film and talked with her off the record for five hours. But in the end, she decided not to participate. What was your impression from talking to her? So it wasn't I who met with Elizabeth. It was Jesse Dieter, uh, one of my producers. And she sat down with her for five hours. And, you know, she, Jesse would say that most of what happened was Elizabeth asking questions of Jesse, as if she was auditioning us to see whether we were worthy to do something uh, about her. But I think you know, broadly speaking, it was clear that at that moment in time, and this would have been 2017, Elizabeth perceived herself to be a victim, not somebody who was contrite, but somebody who was brought low by forces who were out to get her because she was a woman. I want to ask you about some of the most striking moments of the film, which came in the form of in-house footage that was provided to you by someone inside Theranos. There's footage of Elizabeth answering questions in front of a white screen, then there's the footage of Elizabeth and her number two, Sonny Balwani, jumping in a bounce house and getting down to MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. What did you think when you saw that footage for the first time? I was slack-jawed. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. Because this, was, this is what you hope to get if you're in a situation where you're able to follow a company from start to finish in cinema verite fashion. This is the kind of footage you get. You know, everybody dancing to Can't Touch This, you know, at a time when they scored a really minor victory, but they were celebrating like it was, you know, 1999. And then the these company meetings led often by Elizabeth and, and or Sonny Balwani, which were kind of like religious revival meetings, led weirdly in, in one circumstance by a f-ing cheer. I would say that, but I'm... Um, by, by Sonny. So, yeah, it was jaw-dropping. It was jaw-dropping to see kind of the delusional behavior inside the company and also in the hands of a director they hired, another a fellow documentarian, Errol Morris, a series of interviews in which Elizabeth got to present herself the way she wanted to be presented. And that was precious to us because if you're talking about the psychology of deception, now we had an opportunity to show from the inside out how that deception was manufactured. There's one great question where she's asked, can you tell us a secret? Oh, she, it's the one time where she doesn't have a, an answer right on the tip of her tongue, and she starts to stumble and, and, and pause and says, I don't have many secrets. Well, turns out she did. 
Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast. Great. Delighted. So, Damien, you watched Gibney's new film and then reviewed it for Stat. What did you think about it? I really liked it, and I think it succeeded at what it sought out to do. I think what was disappointing, and this isn't even really a critique of, of, of what the filmmakers did, but what was disappointing is that in all the, the Theranos content that we have so ravenously consumed over the past few years, we've gotten a beat by beat of the alleged fraud and the sort of forensic accounting of how everything went wrong. But we're still only getting kind of glancing information about Elizabeth Holmes herself. And she is undoubtedly the star of this movie, the star of this saga. And so by the time the credits rolled, I found myself feeling a little bit unfulfilled in that I didn't get to like peer into the soul of this woman at the heart of the story who is either, you know, I mean, people guess at this throughout the movie, either a true believer who, you know, believed a little too hard or a sociopath who misled these people on purpose and maybe should be separate from society. So among the three of us, I'm the only one who hasn't seen the film. And if you're like me and you really do want to see it, The Inventor will be in theaters for one week starting on Friday in San Francisco, L.A. and New York City. It will air on HBO this coming Monday night, and then it's going to be available for streaming starting on Tuesday. credit for inventing an exciting and potentially curative gene therapy against sickle cell anemia. To the presumably millions of people who watched the CBS News show 60 Minutes last Sunday night, the answer to that question is government-funded doctors working at the National Institutes of Health. Yeah, and if you watched that 60 Minutes segment, you saw a 27-year-old African-American woman cured of her sickle cell disease by this groundbreaking, almost miraculous gene therapy. And the idea for this innovative new therapy was hatched by two NIH scientists slash rock musicians while they were eating pizza before a gig. It was an inspirational and heartwarming story that made for great TV last Sunday night. Except the part where the gene therapy is invented at the NIH is not entirely true. This telling of the story left out a very important participant. Yeah, the truth is that the party most responsible for developing this specific gene therapy against sickle cell disease, you know, and and getting it to patients and possibly getting it approved in a few years is Bluebird Bio. That's a biotech company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, Bluebird was not mentioned at all in the 60 Minutes story, which we found to be really kind of odd. So we decided to do some investigating to figure out what happened. And before we tell you what we discovered, let's step back and recount the story for people who might not have been watching 60 Minutes. Yeah, Rebecca. So this 60 Minutes story followed Janelle Stevenson. She's a 27-year-old African-American woman born with sickle cell disease, which is an inherited and debilitating blood disorder. Now, in December of 2017, Janelle and her family flew from their home in Florida to a hospital outside Washington, D.C., And once there, doctors working for the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, infused her with an experimental therapy designed to correct the faulty gene that was causing her sickle cell disease. And one year later, Janelle showed no signs of sickle cell disease in her blood, which means she was, you know, by any measure, cured and leading a normal, happy life. It was a dramatic story for sure, and it provided an excellent introduction to gene therapy and its disease-curing potential for people who have never heard of the emerging medical technology. Where the story got weird, however, was the way in which 60 Minutes made gene therapy heroes out of Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, and his colleague, Dr. John Tisdale, an NIH hematologist and sickle cell disease expert. 
Dr. Collins was playing in the NIH rock band in 2016 when his bass player, hematologist Dr. John Tisdale, started riffing on an idea. We'd finished setting up and went for a pizza before that. Before the gig. <laughs> at, at this point, I, I pitched to Francis that it was really time that we uh, do something definitive for sickle cell disease. What's wrong with the origin story of this gene therapy as told by 60 Minutes? Yeah, Rebecca, you know, so first let's give, you know, Francis Collins and John Tisdale a lot of credit for their work as scientists. Um, and as 60 Minutes did say, you know, there was like 20 years of research that went into this gene therapy for sickle cell disease. But the, the story kind of goes off the rails with the idea that Collins and Tisdale concocted this gene therapy in 2016 you know, before they play this music gig. You know, the fact is, is that the development of this gene therapy had started years earlier. And in fact, the first sickle cell patient was treated with this therapy back in 2014. So that's two years before Collins and Tisdale ate their pizza. And so as you said before, it was Bluebird Bio who was at work on this specific sickle cell gene therapy at the time, right? Yeah, correct. So, you know, the gene therapy highlighted by 60 Minutes and administered to Janelle Stevenson was a Bluebird experimental treatment called lentiglobin. Janelle is a patient enrolled in an ongoing Bluebird clinical trial. You know, so for five years or so now, Bluebird has been presenting data on its lentiglobin gene therapy at medical meetings. There have been data published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And all of that work is going towards a day, you know, in the next few years when the therapy hopefully will be submitted to regulators for approval. So, Adam, what really happened here? Yeah. So, you know, to be fair, it's not 100 percent correct to call Bluebird the inventor of this gene therapy either. You know, as we've talked on the show before, most recently we had medicinal chemist uh, Derek Lowe on to talk about this. You know, new medicines often have many mothers and fathers. The clinical development of a new drug or in this case, a new gene therapy is built on the foundation of science that goes back years. So it's definitely true that John Tisdale at the NIH, you know, is a government funded scientist, has worked for more than a decade on sickle cell disease and gene therapy. But in telling the story, 60 Minutes just erased the contribution made by Bluebird Bio. So do we know why Bluebird wasn't mentioned in the final story? Yeah, it's a great question. So I asked NIH about this and was told that Collins and Tisdale actually did discuss Bluebird's role with 60 Minutes on multiple occasions. So it doesn't seem like the fault here lies with the NIH. Um, and it's not like the NIH was deliberately trying to take full credit for this gene therapy. Now, I also reached out to Bluebird, and you know they really didn't want to talk about any of this. I did learn, however, that Bluebird was aware of the 60-minute segment and kind of deliberately chose not to participate on camera because they didn't want to be accused of promoting an experimental therapy before it was approved. Now, why 60 Minutes didn't just mention Bluebird's role or why they produced the piece in a way that kind of created this false origin story for the gene therapy remains a mystery. 60 Minutes, of course, is a very popular news program with millions of viewers. Adam, do you think this false impression that the NIH invented the sickle cell gene therapy in 2016 could come back to hurt Bluebird? Yeah, you know, I actually do, Rebecca. You know, while I understand, you know, why Bluebird took this conservative stance, you know, in not jumping at the chance to be interviewed on 60 Minutes, I kind of think about this sort of likely scenario and kind of think about this. You know, in the next few years, Bluebird might win approval for this sickle cell gene therapy, and they're probably going to price it at some sky-high cost. Uh, you know, gene therapies costing, you know, $1 million, $2 million or more per treatment. And I think if that happens, critics will point to the 60-minute story 
and accuse Bluebird of appropriating government research for their own gain. They're going to accuse Bluebird. They're going to say, you know, this gene therapy was invented by the NIH. So why should Bluebird profit? And I think that's a potential headache that Bluebird faces by not correcting the record. Next up, we're going to bring you the story of a different kind of biotech startup and why it failed. Perlora, a South San Francisco-based biotech company, was founded in 2014 to focus on discovering drugs to treat rare diseases. Along the way, it won backing from the startup accelerator Y Combinator, a handful of seed stage investors, and the venture capital firm of Mark Cuban, the billionaire of Shark Tank fame. Most of the company's partnerships took an unusual form. Perlara teamed up with rare disease-focused patient advocacy groups, which committed funding in tranches to the company's research projects, which were designed to produce a drug candidate ready for clinical trials. But after five years in business, the startup shut down at the end of February. Joining us today to talk about what went wrong and lessons learned is Perlara's CEO and founder, Ethan Perlstein. Ethan has long been outspoken about problems he sees with the venture capital funding model. Longtime listeners of this podcast will recall that he discussed the subject on this show last September. Ethan, welcome back to the Read Out Loud. It's great to be back, Rebecca, Damien, and Adam. So Ethan, we're sorry to hear about Polaris closing. Uh, what happened? Yeah, so I can kind of summarize uh, at a high level what happened. And it's a story that's not that unusual in startup land. Uh, You can kind of summarize it as we overdrove our headlights. Uh, And that's an expression I learned uh, from talking to other grizzled veterans in the Valley. And it's something that happens a lot. You know, companies uh, seem to be doing well. um, And then we uh, commit too much, uh, spread a little bit uh, too thin and, and not have enough margin for error. And I think a lot of startups can probably sympathize with that. And there's more to the story, but I think at a high level, um, it's a story of overdriving your headlights. So Perlara was founded as a public benefit corporation. Can you explain what that means and why you decided to go that route for a biotech startup? Sure. So we were actually a Delaware public benefit corporation, and a number of states have passed, starting maybe five or six years ago, a number of states have passed their version of a, of a PBC law. And essentially what that does is it allows you to uh, claim in your articles of incorporation that there is more than just one imperative for the company, and that's not just maximizing profit, it's also to balance that with a social and environmental mission. And so in our case, the social mission was the unmet medical needs of rare disease patients, and the environmental mission was lowering the, the, the carbon footprint of drug discovery. Now, as far as I knew, Perlara and another company, Trek uh, Therapeutics, were the only biotech PBCs uh, in existence. Um, But there are PBCs in other areas of the economy, consumer-facing companies, and so on. But in biotech, um, it is not yet uh, taken off. Ethan, with the benefit of hindsight, what would you have done differently with Perlara, knowing what you know now? Well, as I said in the beginning, the overdriving your headlights is sort of a a common ending for a lot of companies. So I I would definitely want to go back in time to a moment where um, we would have not maybe brought on additional ProQuest programs, even though there was clearly demand, even though it was very exciting and and there was revenue coming from launching these programs. Uh, In the end, they did cause us to spread ourselves a little bit too thin and created a situation where there wouldn't be a lot of margin for error. And I know a lot of companies come to the edge and, and they survive, but a lot of companies unfortunately don't. So do you think the PBC model can work in biotech? I do think it can work. I think that the, the big lesson for me is that the value that I perceived in the PBC was in that it really established trust uh, in us uh, by the patient groups. And I think that was really the, the whole point of the company, was really to project the the concerns and, and ultimately try to um, address the hopes of all of these 
parents and, and advocates looking for, for some kind of medical answer. So I would definitely do that again myself. And I think that others looking to engage, especially in the rare disease community, should look to the PBC model as a way, first and foremost, to establish trust. And Ethan, just as a follow-up, when you talk about overdriving headlights, is it is that a sort of a financial issue that you hit, or was it more of a scientific sort of research? It was more of the, the former. The, the research and the science were really starting to gel, especially for the, the programs that we've been working on the longest. The issue was that by sort of bringing on new programs, yes, that meant more revenue, yes, that meant expanding the pipeline, but it also meant, obviously, more contractual commitments and spreading our team, which was still pretty small and lean, across more and more programs. So I think that whatever your company is, you, there are moments I, I uh, you know, I can recount them myself, but I know other companies too. There are moments when you, you probably are a fork in a road and you can decide, do I want to hit on the gas or do I want to um, maybe cruise a little bit longer? And I think that, you know, making that call at the right moment is, is, is clearly, in the case of Polar and many other companies, a matter of life and death. And if you get that call wrong, as I said, there's no margin for error. So what has it been like these past few weeks winding down operations at Perlara? What's that process entail? I'm approaching this the same way I approached it at the very beginning. So there's a kind of symmetry to this, right? I was the only person in the beginning setting everything up, activating everything, taking everything out of the box for the first time. And now it's sort of like the bookend to that, where it's just me and everything's going sort of back in a box. But I think what's interesting uh, is that it's reminding me why um, I chose this sort of CEO life and why I chose the startup life. Because uh, as much as it's incredibly painful to have to to do this, um, I actually sort of uh, enjoy the, the, the hustle involved in this aspect of trying to figure out how do I get the best deal to liquidate my equipment so I can maximize my refund to my partners. And the same hustle that I invested in making in the company happen, I have to invest to properly wind it down because there's no way in my mind that this can, you can just walk away from this. So I think that I want to, I think we lived with dignity as the first public biotech, um, as the first biotech public benefit company, and then we're going to die with dignity as the first biotech public benefit company. So Perlora had a lot of research in motion. What happens to all of that now? Yeah, great question. That's part of what the orderly wind down is all about, is making sure that the progress we made doesn't just you know reach a screeching halt. So for instance, our first program was for a, a very rare disease called NGLI-1 deficiency. And for that program, we used worms and flies to identify not only existing approved drugs um, that could be repurposed for this tiny disease, but also novel chemical entities, in other words, starting points for, for discovery programs. Part of what we've done with the NGLI-1 program is to make that data free and to invite other to join us in an, in an open source effort to move some of the discoveries we made forward, including drugs that are already proved in the U.S. For another program, we're, we're actively working with one of the families and a clinician to see if we can't take one of, again, a, a drug that we discovered that's already approved uh, and see if we can't show um, that we can make that last mile clinically. And beyond that, I've been refunding partners, ProQuest partners, for uncompleted activities. Um, but aside from that, you know, I, I just need to make sure that I don't leave these partners uh, high and dry. So it's only me. There's only so much I can do at this point, um, but at least I can honor those commitments to the best of my ability. So Ethan, you said uh, you want your next act to be in the rare disease field. Can you tell us more about what you have in mind? Sure. I mean, I, I feel very connected to this community. I feel very connected to this science. I, I feel that all the, the years of experience, you know, make me well suited to continue to contribute to this area. So I don't want to start 
uh, from scratch is what I'm saying. And I want to build on the relationships and the discoveries that have that have been made. So I don't know what that's going to look like. I have to factor in, you know, considerations from my, my family and my personal life and, and things that, um, you know, had, had been sacrificed up until this point. So all I know is that I'm not going to like, you know, become a consultant in, or, or, or God forbid, a venture capitalist, or maybe someone's going to come back and I'll regret those words. But I see myself as wanting to um, stay in the rare disease community and figure out ways to continue to contribute. So in keeping with that commitment to, to open source, Ethan, you've been very transparent about how Perlara has worked um, over the years. And, and in keeping with that transparency, you disclosed on Twitter that the company was winding down. What was the response like from people once they heard that, uh, that this experiment was coming to a close? I was really blown away by all the outpouring of support and from whether that's from founders or parents in rare disease or just, you know, just biotech professionals, you know, just just wonderful uh, demonstration of, of, of support for what we were doing. So I just wanted to, you know, give a shout out back to everyone who was who had our back and who was rooting for us. Um, and that, you know, we're not going, or at least I'm not going anywhere in this community. I know all the people who are in Perlara are also just isn't committed to this mission. I mean, are going to do everything they can as well to continue to, to carry the torch forward. So um, just a shout out to everyone who was rooting for us. Ethan, we appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And lastly, the wait for a new FDA commissioner was pretty short. Less than a week after Scott Gottlieb's surprise announcement that he'll resign next month, his replacement is on the way. That's right. Ned Sharpless, now the director of the National Cancer Institute, will take over at the FDA when Scott Gottlieb's gone. So uh, who is this guy? Sharpless is a cancer doctor, as you might assume from him running NCI, and he's got a deep resume in the world of research. But much like the commissioner he's replacing, Sharpless has been a willing collaborator with the drug industry. So we don't need to belabor this after doing a whole podcast on the Gottlieb situation last week. But as we had mentioned, there was some concern in biotech circles that the Trump administration might appoint someone who would drastically change the FDA. And it's an FDA that has been pretty business friendly. So what's been the reaction to Sharpless's appointment? The reaction has been pretty positive, right? I think that it's sort of a sigh of relief that this is a guy who's going to sort of continue the policies of uh, Scott Gottlieb, both kind of on the drug development front and then also kind of on the anti-tobacco vaping uh, stuff that Scott has tried to crack down on. So I think, you know, from a biopharma perspective and from a healthcare investor perspective, people were very happy with the fact that Sharpless is now going to run the FDA. The big question that remains now is whether Sharpless will remain acting FDA commissioner or whether he will get the full-time nod. Uh, our colleagues Lev Fasher and Kate Sheridan have a story up on statnews.com this morning that delves into who Sharpless is and, and his uh, penchant for pickup basketball, which we encourage you to read. But one of the tidbits of reporting in there is that people in D.C. seem to think that he may end up being Scott Gottlieb's full-time replacement. that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Before we go, I have a slightly absurd correction to mention. On last week's episode about Scott Gottlieb, I misspoke at one point. I had misremembered which news organization fell for the joke that Gottlieb made on Twitter about appearing on the front cover of the magazine Backyard Poultry. That was the Washington Post, not the New York Times, that took Gottlieb's joke at face value. So that's uh, fake chicken news? Double fake chicken news, actually. Okay. Well, I'm glad that we've corrected the record. Thank you to Hyacinth Epinato, who produced this week's episode. 
Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd always love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked or didn't like about this week's episode, or give us suggestions about what we should do next time we're on the microphone. And you can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.